0: Well, good morning again, my name is Sean, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're visiting with us, you're watching online or here in person, we welcome you, it's glad to have you with us. Uh, today is Communion Sunday, we do this once a month and because it's such an official sacrament that we take very seriously, we have our ministers uh, clothe themselves in the robe of the office on our Communion Sundays, in case you're wondering why we are dressed like that. We're continuing our series this morning we're looking at strong Old Testament women. We've been through the book of Esther together and now we're working our way through the book of Ruth. We'll be using the ESV translation which is found for you on page 10. And there's also a kid's translation on page 11. I'll be referring to both of those uh, throughout the sermon. You wanna keep those handy there in your bulletin or open your own Bibles or your smartphone apps if you have them. The ESV app on the uh, app, uh, I- iPhone is really, really good if you don't have that, I highly recommend it. Um, So Ruth, as we've talked about, is a historical book. It's talking about the history of ancient Israel and God's people in ancient Israel. So as such, we need to be careful that the best way to apply it is to not get distracted by words like nation and country and, and, and apply that to our nation and country. And still we need to recognize this is God's special covenant people. And so he is talking to them. And so who is God's special covenant people now? It's us, those of us in Christ, those of us in church world who are seeking to be faithful. And so the book of Ruth, like most historical books, is a great way for a Holy Spirit to come and to kind of critique Christians and to kind of critique churchgoers to greater obedience and to help us see ourselves kind of holds up a mirror for us and so if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian you kind of have the rare pri- privilege of hearing God's word actually critique those already in so you can sit back and see what God thinks about certain issues. Um, just like you the Lord has revealed himself as one who does not appreciate hypocrisy. He longs for authenticity and so books like this help kind of take away the chaff, help us get down to what it means to really walk in faithfulness in a difficult life. So with that, one of the big problems that we Christians have, myself included, is that we really fail often to live in God's complete acceptance of us that we root our acceptance, we root our stability in our religious performance instead of resting in the performance of Jesus and it keeps us in this immature, ungrowing faith. We're tossed about by the shifting sand of our faithfulness instead of being rooted in the hard, steadfast soil of Christ's faithfulness. And there's a very similar problem here in Ruth. It will speak right to our hearts. She, she's, she's left her Moabite past She's clinging to Naomi and to Naomi's God and now Ruth must live among God's people, trusting that God will provide and trusting that she really is one of his people now, that she really is an insider instead of an outsider, that she really is one of us versus one of them, whoever your them is. You know, they're letting them come to church now whoever that is for you. She, that's how she assumes she's gonna be looked at in ancient Israel. She has her doubts, she has her fears, especially about God's people. Have you ever had doubts about where you stand with God's people? And then Ruth is for you. So what's going on in Ruth? Okay, let's kind of catch up to speed. So the very beginning, there's a famine in the land that they live in. God told them at the very beginning of all this stuff, hey, when I send a famine, and so other things, it means that you need to straighten up and look at yourselves, you're not living faithfully in covenant. It's like a check engine light. So the check engine light comes on, there's a famine in the land, and this family, instead of popping the hood, they say, you know what, we need a new car. So you ditch that thing and they go get a different car. They go, to a, they go to a land they're not supposed to go to, they bail on God in his faithfulness, they go over here, the, hus- the main father, the husband dies, the two sons die, and this lady named Naomi is now older and she's got two adult daughters-in-law who are widows as well. So we have these three widows in a foreign land and they don't know what to do. So Naomi says, I'm going home. She repents and she's going home. One of her daughter, daughters-in-law comes back with her. Her name is Ruth. She comes because she has cast her lot with Naomi. She has watched Naomi struggling faith and she herself makes this great confession of faith where she's like, you're, you're struggling faith in real life. I want something like that because I don't have anything like that. So she follows her and she's like, I'm not leaving you. We saw last week that in Bethlehem, Naomi is a bitter old woman, not bitter resentful, but bitter isn't like recognizing life stinks, but life stinks in a universe. God did it and he's still my God. And that deep, hurt faith really affects Ruth. And so she, she follows even harder. and She wants to come. And we get there and we find out it's the time of harvest. The famine is over. So there's food and there's work. And that's right where our text picks up today. It's a longish text. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stay seated. But if you'll look with me, please, on page 10. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. <clears throat> now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. This is God's word. Let's pray together. O gracious God and heavenly Father, will we come before you this morning grateful for your word. Grateful, Lord, that you have come to us when we would not, could not come to you. You've come to us and revealed your grace, shown us your kindness, displayed your beauty, and drawn us into your very, very heart. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do all those things this morning as we walk through Ruth. Would you show us your grace? Would you show us our need of that grace? And would you bring us, Lord, to repentance and a robust faith? And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So our theme for today, kind of something you can hang your hat on, what the whole sermon is going to be about is this. It says, we strive to be worthy even while denying our worth until love makes us worthy. So it starts out with being worthy. We'll see this in the first couple of verses. So there's a big man in town. His name is Moaz. And he just happens to be a distant relative of Naomi. Shocking. So notice, contrary to her complaint last week, she is not empty. You know, she complained, God, I went away full. God brought me back empty. He's like, no, you have Ruth. And guess what? You've got a big dog relative. It's like a Victorian novel, right? They're in the depths of this poverty. But all of a sudden, some rich uncle appears you know, I mean, we're joking, but you know, it's often for those of us going through trial, for those of us going through suffering, if you notice, you tend to get really pessimistic. You tend to get really negative and you tend to kind of get tunnel vision and you only focus on the bad and you tend to ignore the other blessings that God has put right around you. Just like Naomi here, she's a bitter old widow sitting around the house, but Ruth was like, you know what? I'm hungry. She's mama, I'm going to go glean. Okay, what's that? Gleaning, what in the world is that? Okay, it's a, it's a very common ancient Near Eastern practice, but in Israel, it was much more robust. So what, w- what it was was that the poor were allowed to follow the harvesters and pick up the leftovers. That's basically it. But in Israel, like I said, it was much more robust. By God's gracious command, his people had to do more than that. The harvesters, by command in scripture, you can look at it, it's in Leviticus, it's in Deuteronomy, several places, they were not to be as efficient as possible. It's the best way to put it in terms we would understand. They would take the scythe, they would go through, they would, and if you ever use their actual old-fashioned scythe, I have, it takes like two or three passes to, to get, nope, one swing and move on. So they would actually leave a lot behind and the working poor, people who were willing to work, were allowed to come and gather that harvest. Even more so, God commanded the farmers, okay, here's your field, I want you to plow the whole field, I want you to seed the whole field. I want you to take care of the entire field the whole season. So you pay all that labor, you extend all that labor, but then you are not allowed to harvest the outer edge of your field. You have to leave it for the poor. So he came along and said, yeah, you worked it. Yeah, you did all this stuff, and no, you don't get the reward, and it's not fair. What are you gonna do? I'm God, Let's just own it, okay? It's not, that's not fair, right? Because God says it's not your land, it's my land, and I take care of my people with my land. Now, I'm not going to go there, okay, so you're starting to get cringy, okay? This has much more to do with the way Christians view and treat our stuff, our property, our incomes, our stuff, than it does with making any kind of like cut paste, well here's how America's economic policy should be. You can maybe get some wisdom from that, but again, Ruth is a historical book talking to God's people in a special relationship with him. And so we don't say, well God's rules for them must be God's rules for our country. No, God's rules for them are God's rules for us. We can absolutely get into elected office and use this wisdom to affect economic policy, but we can't just say, and therefore, the government should enforce you to have to give away. I don't want to get into that because the scripture doesn't get into that. The point is God comes to his people and says, you don't have stuff. I have stuff, and I give you your stuff. And if I say that you should use a part of this stuff to help other people, even if you don't think they deserve it, do you think you deserve the stuff I gave you? So the farmers kind of operated in this. Now, if you read the Old Testament, there's ample evidence that just like us, they went, yeah, no, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> and over and over again, the prophets were castigating for disobeying these gleaning laws. So it's a God's gracious dealings. He comes and he wants to take care of the poor, but here is the issue. Let's be realistic. This is not much better than someone collecting aluminum cans in the alleys in the shopping cart that you have all seen. I mean, it's, it's a step above that, but it's not much above that. You, you wouldn't starve, but you wouldn't be happy, right? So you could, you could take care of the money. You could, you could get some food. But that's about it. But it's something. So Ruth is going to go do it. So she steps out in active faith to see if God is real and if God's people are real, will they really do this crazy, extra gracious thing that she's heard about? You know, there's a, there's a group of people in our country called de-churched. I don't know who came up with the name, but they have owned it, and they are people who grew up in a church, have been exposed to a church, and and now they live their life. They're like, no, thank you, and if you actually talk to them, and people have, over and over again, it's not that they found God lacking. It's not that they said, yeah, I, I got that whole gospel thing. I was like, meh, not for me. It's that they found God's people lacking, They said, it it seems like this is how it was supposed to be, but I encountered this, and I just didn't want to deal with that. And that's where Ruth kind of is right now. It's like, well, this is what I've heard. I'm gonna step out and see if this is actually real. She's confessed faith in the God of Israel. She's afraid. She's unsure. Will she actually be accepted by God's people? Because she's a hated Moabite. But I love how in her fear, she's not passive, she takes action. She steps out and God uses that. But look what happens with me at verse three. It says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz. I love that just happened. In the Hebrew, it's literally she chanced a chance. Like the, you can tell the writer's being ironic, right? So let's get this straight here. So there just happens to be a relative who's like a rich big dog in town. Naomi forgot about him. He's described as a man of means, he's important. Ruth just happens to end up in his field. Oh, and he just happens to show up right when she's there. Like as a reader, you're supposed to be like, you know, am I being punked? Because this has all the things, right? See, God's working behind the scenes. He's not just leaving her alone. God's in control of all things, but notice that in biblical world, sure, you can go talk to the philosophers and after they they go, why? They'll be like, well, if God is in control of all things and that means we don't do anything, like, well, uh, that may be Aristotle, but scripture says God works and people work because look, God's in control of all things and it doesn't negate human effort. Ruth's request to glean Naomi's permission, Ruth's choice of a field, Boaz choosing to check on the field at that time, they're all instruments in the sovereign God's hand to bring about his purposes. So Boaz shows up and he is a substantial important man. This is a great Hebrew word, I think the the ESV translates it a worthy man. If you're familiar with the King James version, this is like one of those great King James phrases. It's a mighty man of valor. Right? It's like, that's really cool. I'm going to get that on a tattoo maybe, like MMV. <laughs> this is a word that's used of heroes in the Old Testament. And at the time of Ruth's setting, it was a military hero. In fact, the most recent per- person, Ruth, it happens at the time of Judges, the, one of the judges who was called by this name is Gideon, a military hero who did a big victory for God's people. So the text says, here's this hero. He shows up and he's the big boss man. And I love how so often it's depicted or maybe you, you, you feel this way, you act as if your boss has horns and a tail, right? Well, he shows up and he blesses his employees in the covenant special first name of the Lord. It's not just God bless you, it's like the specific covenant name. Whenever you see capital L, capital O, R, that's like a first name. May he bless you, it's specific. And they bless him right back. The writer is indicating here, this Boaz guy actually lives this covenant stuff out. It's not just something he does you know, on, on Saturdays, which was their Sabbath. So he notices a new face in the field, he's looking at it, he doesn't know who it is, so he goes to his guy with the clipboard, he's like, who's she worked for? What subcontractor is that? Here's how he put it for the kids, boys and girls, because I know, what's a subcontractor? Okay, kids, look at me, you're verse six and seven, here's the answer. The manager said, well that's the girl from Moab everybody's been talking about, the one who came back with Naomi. She asked if she could gather up the grain we leave for the poor, and she's been working at it all day. Okay, so kids, stu- young students still here? Remember? I hope you've seen this movie. Remember the Pixar movie Finding Nemo? Right? I love Finding Nemo. Great movie. So Marlin is a little clownfish. He's lost his son, and he gets to the Great Barrier Reef. And he tells his story so far. And an, one fish tells another fish tells another fish. And it eventually gets to Nemo, who's in a tank in Sydney. It's a great like picture of how positive gossip flows through a community. And that's what's happening right here. Like this happened, and all of a sudden it's flowed through the whole thing. And they're like, and the, the manager of the clipboard's like, Boaz, brah, you you hadn't heard about this guy? Oh my gosh, he fought like three sharks to get his son back. They're telling the story of Ruth the Moabite. They've been sharing the story, her devotion to Naomi, her faith in God, and now her work ethic, all these things commend her to the community. And yet, as you read through the text, it really does seem that Ruth is still afraid. We'll get into it a little bit later, but verse 10 and 13, the way she reacts to Boaz, it reveals that she's still in fear. After her conversion to the God of Israel, after being planted in Bethlehem with his people, she's striving to be accepted. She's striving to survive. She's working really hard at being worthy just like so often you and I tend to work, don't we? She's like Christians who even though we're born again, even though we've said the right words, we fundamentally doubt the gospel. It can't really be all of grace. It's too good to be true. God can't be that loving. He sees me. He knows how pathetic I am. I'm such a bad Christian. By the way, there are no good Christians. That's why we need Jesus. Sorry. So we strive really hard to make God love us, to make others think really highly of us because we, we can't believe that we only have to rest in this grace and so we strive at being worthy just like Ruth does here. But just like Ruth, we work really hard at being worthy but God comes and gives us conviction so we start really feeling unworthy. So we recognize that it's not our efforts. Verses eight through 10 That's where Ruth is, she's feeling unworthy. So Boaz knows who Ruth is. He comes up to her, he talks to her, he calls her daughter. Which by the way, the very first time Naomi talks to Ruth after Ruth's confession of faith, she too calls her daughter. So we've got these two older characters calling her daughter. Again, the writer is hinting, Ruth is family, Ruth is family. And even more, I love how young is all over this passage at this point. The manager is young, Ruth is young, the women reapers are young, the men harvesters are young, Boaz is the only uh, non-young person, you know, and, and he, we know that because he calls Ruth daughter. But note, who is it who sets the tone? Who is it who decides who's favored? Who is it that God uses to begin blessing Ruth? Who is it who's the hero? It's the old guy. Oh, VIPs, that's our ministry to the non-young in our church. Um, this is your time to be the hero. This church with you know, increasing younger people coming, we need you. I'm serious right now. Invite them to lunch. Mentor them. Share your wisdom. Get into a relationship and let them taste and see your lifetime of a seasoned faith, a faith that's been through a lot. Let them know that. Your age group VIPs is the one that so often God uses to begin blessing and turning a church around. And I don't think Sycamore is going to be different. And Boaz is a great example of this. He comes and he says, like, I've got gravitas and resources, and I'm going to do something with them. So Boaz tells Ruth, okay, stick with the women gatherers. The, these are the women people who followed the harvesters. Um, so what they would do is they'd have, the men would come and they'd have the side, there'd be teams of them, they'd, they'd you know, cut the grass, they'd move on and just leave it behind them. And then there was teams of women who would come behind them. They would gather them up, tie them in the bundles, set them aside and move on. And then other people would come and gather the bundles. And so what Boaz does, he tells Ruth, hey, stick with them. Hey, she so she's no longer picking out leftovers here she's getting the fresh stuff so the, the implication is hey as they're gathering to tie up just gather some for yourself just stick with them and go follow them around my whole farm don't go anywhere else let I me mean, give you I, I want you to see how gracious this is so um, I want you to think of, there, there's some cotton farming here in Virginia, right? I grew up in the Mid-South, there was cotton is king. So cotton farming, especially since World War II, it has been harvested by these mechanical harvesters. And if you've ever seen a field after a mechanical harvester, cotton, it leaves so much cotton, it's so inefficient. Now they're better now, but they're really bad. And my wife, Nikki, comes from a large cotton fa- uh, farming family in Arkansas. And her uncle tells the story about how when they were teenagers, they had to follow the mechanical harvesters and pick up all the leftovers, so much left and they would get paid for it and so one day he gets caught cheating because he he doesn't have enough and he wants to get more money so he runs up and no one's looking he goes to the hopper of the mechanical harvester and starts doing this right but the problem is a human picks a cotton bowl a mechanical harvester picks leaves twigs and everything else is all of a sudden he has this beautiful pristine clean bag of cotton and all of a sudden he starts putting in trash in there and his dad Nikki's grandfather sees it and you know does what someone of that generation does for such blatant disobedience you know we can't do that today child abuse anyway so uncle learns lesson don't cheat what boaz is saying to her right here right now is walk up to the hopper and grab as much as you want it's yours take it it's an unbelievable extravagant gift because he's a mighty man of valor in God's eyes and he's doing something with the resources God has given them I mean Boaz shows us what God thinks a hero is I mean think about that the same word for David's navy seal unit you know his David's mighty men of valor that like did all sorts of crazy things it's the same word for Boaz he doesn't even have a sword we don't even know if he hunts he may not even play sports how can he be manly See, but Boaz shows us what God thinks a mighty man of valor looks like by providing for Ruth, by offering her protection. And what's Ruth's reaction to this obvious blessing from God? It's disbelief. What's the catch? Why are you doing this? Look at me at verse 10. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Now if you're paying attention, Boaz is the answer to her prayer in verse two, wherever I may find favor, God answers it, and she's like, well, it can't be the answer to my prayer. I'm not worthy. See, when God's people doubt his grace, we dismiss his blessings. In spite of her belief in God, in spite of her walking out in faith and leaving her own life, she doesn't really think God is gonna do anything for her. She's not really part of his family. See, and when we don't believe the gospel, we too strive out of fear and doubt. And when God does bless us, we see all the reasons he shouldn't and can explain it away. I mean, there's a great picture there we just saw in verse 10 where she actually falls to her face, bowing to the ground. Now that's part of ancient Near Eastern you know, melodrama, really being opened with their emotions. But that's what sinners do in the presence of extreme grace. Oh, Christians in the room, are we amazed at the grace we get? I mean, yeah, it's a catchy song, I know, but do we live our life as if it's, eh, amazing grace? It's more like mediocre favor, you know? I mean, because again, when we church folk don't believe the gospel that because of Jesus, sinners like me are completely forgiven and placed in a place of favor by God, when we don't get that, we not only explain away God's blessings, We don't really worship him. Because without the gospel, without grace, if it's all about our efforts and our faithfulness, why would we worship him? It's about us. See, we should be asking like Ruth does here, why did I attain this grace? And when we hear, you shouldn't, instead of getting, oh, okay, depressed, like, oh, that's right, because it's about grace. It's not about me. It's about you being gracious. Ruth didn't earn any of this. Boaz was gracious because he was gracious. So when we hear that there's nothing we can do to earn God's blessing, that Jesus earned it all, that we get it, we bow down and we worship in abject gratefulness, like why would you do this for me? Ruth, here in verse 10, is a great picture of worship. She has been made to feel unworthy, so now she can be lifted up and made worthy in verses 11 through 13, because that's what God does. By grace, he makes us worthy. Boaz has shown her grace. He's shown her favor, and he tells her why. Let's all look together at the kids, verse 11. Here's how we put it for them. Boaz said to her, "'I've heard all about what you did for Naomi.'" Even though you were a widow too, you left your whole life behind to come with Naomi to us. See, boys and girls, Boaz heard the story. He's like, wow, you took on on three sharks to find your son. Just like Nemo, he heard that whole story. He's like, I can't believe you did that for Naomi. I can't believe you gave up everything to come here. I can't believe God is working in you like that. I want to be part of that blessing and bless you. Here's how it is in the ESV in verse 11. It says, he heard how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. That sounds really good. She's made a great sacrifice. Those are key phrases there that an Old Testament reader would pick up. That's exactly the description of what Abraham did when God called him out of his land to a different land. And God commended Abraham for it. See, the writer is screaming out to those who have the eyes to see it or ears to hear it in verse 11. Ruth shows the faith of Abraham. Ruth did what Abraham did. Ruth is a daughter of Abraham. And then Boaz makes it explicit when he prays for her in verse 12, saying, the Lord repay you The Lord give a full, may a full reward be given to you. He uses the personal covenant name for God. He assumes that God has used her to bless others, and he assumes that God will now bless her. And why does he make that assumption? I don't think we have a slide for this, but look at at verse 12, it says this. says, that next phrase says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's an Old Testament picture used several places for what God does to Israel when he chooses to make them his own, when he offers them his grace, when he enters into covenant. We we would say when he saves them. See, Boaz calls Ruth a daughter of Abraham with this image. You have come under the Lord's wings. You are a child of Abraham. Oh, for those of you in church world who are more theologically astute, or minded, Um, you don't have to go to Galatians three to see twice where God says if you're in Christ you're a child of Abraham, a true Israelite. To see that the word Israel is not about ethnicity in the Bible. It's about those who are in covenant. And every Christian is a child of Abraham according to Galatians and we see that right here in Ruth. Ruth has placed herself upon Abraham's God and Boaz says you're a daughter of Abraham. Not a Moabite. Here's how we put it for the kids. Verse 12 says this, that I pray that our God will make up for all the bad things in your life because you clearly trust him as your God now. You see, boys and girls, it's one thing to know about God, but it's another thing for Ruth to say, I've heard Naomi Naomi talk about this God, but now I believe in this God, and so now he's my God. I am under his wings. That's where Ruth is now. Boaz confirms you have made our God your God, and so we are, you're, we are siblings. You're a sister because you're a daughter of Abraham, and I'm a son of Abraham, and that's why he's blessing her. Boaz is a man of faith. He humbly expresses his faith in God by caring for Ruth, by doing what he can, and God calls him a hero. He was alert to the effects of sin on somebody else. So he not only prays for Ruth, he does everything in his power to be the answer to her prayer. How many of you wanna make a difference in your life? How many of you have this like, deep desire to matter? Right? It's there for all of us. I know that it tends to be there more for younger people. Right? How many of you, like, you wanna make your life count? You wanna you, you do something significant. You wanna do something meaningful, Right? can I be candid? Especially especially guys, because I am one, so I know how our, our brains work. And ladies, if you do this too, then this is for you too. Um, guys, quit daydreaming about some extraordinary situation where you could stand up and be great and do something amazing. You know, that moment when You get to be a Spartan and and say the words that you see on the back of the big pickup trucks with the lift kits on them. You know, come and get them, right? Government gonna come take my guns. Oh yeah, come and get them. Government gonna take my kids and make them liberal. Come and get them, right? Can we stop daydreaming about that? It's not gonna happen. You're probably not gonna be in that situation. God's call to greatness for you God's definition of a mighty man of valor is someone who looks around at the ravages of sin in their community and says, I think I can make a difference in a small way. I have resources. I have influence here. God's heroes do God's work with what God's given them, where God has put them. Instead of waiting for something cool to happen, they can stand up and be cool. See, Boaz changes Ruth's life. He shows her the truth of God's grace, and she gets it. She says in verse 13, I have found favor. What she hoped for and prayed for in verse two, what she disbelieved in verse 10, she now accepts in verse 13. This is for me. Boys and girls, Here's how he put it for you guys. Look, what Ruth says, this is great. She says, God answered my prayer. I not only found grace, but you've also encouraged a nobody like me see boys and girls she gets it i'm a nobody there's nothing in me to earn such favor it's simply the gift of god and i recognize that he loves me so i accept it i take it see ruth has learned that this god boaz's god is not her father's god the Moabite religion was all about performance. Most evidence seems to indicate that they liked human sacrifice, so give blood, preferably human, and then you get blessing. There was no grace for the needy, no grace for the lowly. And this encounter with God's grace through the kindness of another cemented her faith. And what the rest of the Bible tells us and what Ruth and Boaz don't know is that what we do is that God sent another covenant hero, the ultimate mighty man of valor, a greater Boaz who also provided for his people. And he's done everything to provide and everything to protect them. This mighty man of valor, this covenant hero is the Lord Jesus Christ who saw his people weighed down by sin, weighed down by death, weighed down by sadness, struggling under futility and so he provided himself. When his people were oppressed and imprisoned, He protected us by giving his own life to set us free. The Lord Jesus lived the life of obedience that God demands. He died the death fully absorbing God's wrath for our sins and our disobedience. He took our punishment to protect us from it when he died on the cross. And in his resurrection, he proves that God accepts his death for ours and so we can walk in that freedom. Christians, quit looking to your moral efforts, quit looking to your behavior for your security and your acceptance before God. That's not the gospel. And it it keeps you in in an exhausting religion of performance, doesn't it? It keeps you anxious, it keeps you fearful. And you never take God's grace to anyone when you're like that because you've never actually tasted it yourself. Instead, look to the grace of Jesus in the cross and see that you're fully accepted by God. And rooted in that security, rooted in that grace, you can be an instrument of his grace to others. You can go to your community and be the hero God intends for you to be with the resources he's given you right where he's put you. I went to non-Christians here, maybe watching online. Man, the marvelous grace of God comes to outsiders. People who don't know him People who aren't his type, like Ruth. Even now, Jesus offers you life. He offers you peace as a gift of his grace. If you want that, repent of your sins and turn in faith and trust to Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel, and you, like Ruth, can be accepted as family. Let's pray together. And gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we we do struggle to believe your grace. We do struggle to believe such kindness. It's just too much, Lord. It's just too much. Lord, would you help us by your spirit to repent of looking to our own efforts, our own performance, and to rest, Lord, in the performance of Jesus on the cross that we might be rooted and grounded in your love for us instead of tossed about by the shifting sand of our own unfaithfulness. Our Lord, by your spirit, would you show us more of Jesus. And we ask all this, Lord, in his strong name. Amen.